Welcome to the Bold Movement Podcast. Every Thursday, you can expect an exegetical approach to scripture as you're led verse by verse through the real stories in the Bible. You can find all episodes of the Bold Movement Podcast for free on iTunes and Spotify. And every Monday, make sure to check out Bold Is. This week, join Meg as she teaches you God's Word and discover why, to this day, it's still as relevant and significant as it was then. Are you ready to be bold? Here's your host, Megan Rollins. Hey there, and welcome back. In this episode, we're going to work through Esther chapter 3, and it is really easy to get lost when studying, so let's do this together. All right, ladies, I am so excited to talk about Esther, but before we dive in, I need to introduce you to a new character in the story. You see, all good stories have a villain, and in this case, his name is Haman. Haman weaseled his way into a position of power, so let's read and see what's up. Today, we're going to be reading from the NIV. Verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So listen to this. Haman was an Amalekite, okay? And this is very important, especially as it relates to the relationship, or lack thereof, he has with Esther and Mordecai. You see, according to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, the Amalekites had attacked the Israelites in the wilderness and were therefore cursed. And this happened in Exodus 17. And uh, you can read that in verse 14. In 1 Samuel 15:8, Saul destroyed all the Amalekites but King Agag. And since the Lord had ordered the complete destruction of the Amalekites, Samuel, Saul's priest, rebuked Saul for his disobedience and reproved and reported God's rejection of Saul as king. Then Samuel himself executed Agag. In Numbers 24-7, Agag is used to refer to the Amalekite people. Agag was a common name among Amalekite kings, much as Pharaoh among Egyptian rulers. So we have this guy whose heritage hates the Jews, and vice versa. Then Haman was promoted to the second-in-command position under, right under, King Xerxes. This is important to remember, especially when we get to chapter 10. Let's go to verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Does this situation sound familiar at all? Perhaps we can spot some similarities between this and our friends from the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel himself. Verse 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. So let's talk about the king's gate so you get an idea of what's really happening here, like a visual. According to Joyce Baldwin, the gate at Persopolis, which was approached by a spacious stairway and was guarded by huge lion-like figures and which measured 60 by 30 meters, there was room for all the king's servants and others besides in the shady recesses of the gate at Susa's palace. Those officially appointed by the king to his service had to stay within the gate of the royal palace. 
it is still part of Eastern courtesy to bow in recognition of age and honor, and there is evidence that Israelite culture was no exception. While, um, while options was given supremely to God and the king, suppliants bowed when seeking favor. So Jacob to Esau in Genesis 33. Three and when expressing indebtedness, David to Jonathan, First Samuel twenty forty one, but Mordecai stubbornly refused to submit for any reason to Haman. Indeed, there seems to have been a general lack of respect for this man. Otherwise, there should have been no need for a royal command that people should bow down to him. Others might confirm, but Mordecai was no yes man. While the fact that he was a Jew would not preclude his bowing down, the faith of the exiles tended to encourage an independence of judgment and action, which embarrassed their captors. It's interesting. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Let's note here that Haman was so filled with fury that he not only calculated vengeance on Mordecai, but also on his entire race. Okay? Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Guys, listen to how strategic and sovereign God is. According to Karen Jobes, in Proverbs 16.33, the Goral, or lot, is mentioned again. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Haman cast the lot to secure a date for the successful annihilation of the Jews, but it was Yahweh, the God of the Jews, who determined how it fell. Even the date of the planned annihilation of God's people was determined neither by Haman's God nor by chance. It was determined by Yahweh, according to the ancient covenant he had made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. At the Exodus, commemorated by the Passover, God saved his people from destruction by the Amalekites and promised to do so from generation to generation. To the Jewish reader, Haman's casting of the Pur and the resulting edict of death on Passover Eve would be profoundly ironic, suggesting the critical question, would God still deliver his people now in exile in Persia? even though they had violated the very covenant in which he promised protection? In other words, the knowledgeable reader would be asking whether the covenant with Yahweh celebrated the Passover was still in effect for the Jews of Persia. Because the remnant of Jews who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple were nevertheless still under Persian rule. Their fate, too, was being cast in faraway Susa. How interesting is that? Okay, Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, This is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. According to Joyce Baldwin, again, because she's just 
really, really smart. <laughs> the word translated treasuries is another Persian word. So the author was familiar with the vocabulary of the court at Susa. The planned massacre, gruesome though it was, was not without precedence. In 522 BC, at the time of King Cambyses' death, Smerdis, the Magus, usurped the throne. Now, I probably butchered all those names, so bear with me. When he was put to death in a conspiracy, every Persian in the capital, capital took up his weapon and killed every Magus he could find. If darkness had not put an end to the slaughter, the whole caste would have been exterminated. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Guys, Haman convinced the king that the Jews were essentially going to try to quote-unquote overthrow him, which is ridiculous. But as, he, as we saw in chapter 1, not hard to back this king into a corner, okay? Um, placing the signet ring on the, on the finger of Haman was giving him executive power. We saw this with Joseph and Pharaoh in Genesis, okay? Let's move on to verse 12. Oh, actually, let's just finish this up, and then um, I'll give some notes on that. Oops, sorry. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps. Guys, these words. The governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on one single day. The thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and the plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The courier went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Look, I know I've quoted her a lot, and I'm actually going to basically read an entire page out of this commentary because it was so good and I didn't want to mess it up. So let's see what Karen Jobes has to say. Because this is very, very interesting. The New Testament book of Revelation portrays the worldly powers of the Roman Empire as an ugly beast who demanded worship and who received his authority from the dragon. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Revelation 13, 5 and 7, emphasis added. Everyone whose name, I said emphasis added as if you guys were reading it with me. I am so sorry. Everyone whose name was not written in the book of life, those who do not belong to the Lamb, bow down and worship the beast. Those who refuse to bow put their lives in jeopardy. Satan, the dragon, drives the beast of world empires to demand respect and to destroy those who refuse it. When he was in the desert, Jesus himself endured Satan's demand to be worshipped. In Luke 4, 5-8, through 8, Satan displays all the kingdoms of the world and said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Jesus refused to bow down to Satan, and consequently, the worldly powers of the Jewish aristocracy, (laughs) why can I not speak today, consorting with the Roman regime were eventually turned against him at his crucifixion. An assault on God's covenant people at any time in human history is really an attack on the authority, power, and character of God himself. Although neither God nor Satan is mentioned in the book of Esther, there is a force at work directing the mighty power of Persia against God's people. It is a force that demands to be respected and honored, a force that is willing to destroy those who refuse. However, at even greater power is concurrently at work protecting, preserving, and saving the Jews from destruction. Both the power that would destroy and the greater power that would deliver from destruction are veiled in the actions of Haman and Xerxes of Mordecai and Esther. Satan's rebellion against God and his people is played out in the lives of people whose individual decisions have far-reached consequences. Although Mordecai did not refuse to pay homage to Haman for explicitly religious reasons in the Esther story, he and even Vashti stand on the side of those who refuse to bow to the beast and who, as a result, suffer the crushing force of earthly powers driven by Satan. Guys, this truth still stands today. Power is one of the most common reasons people sin. Well, that's all for the today's episode of the Bold Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week when we talk about Chapter 4 of Esther. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you are wondering what Bible translation is best for you, stop by our website at www.theboldmovement.com and check out our latest blog. Until next time... Go out and be bold.